chapter 14, verse 8 is where we're going to start this week. But before we start, I want to make sure that we kind of start off uh, kind of recapping last week. Last week we, we finished in uh, chapter, or chapter 14, verse 7, but what had happened was in Antioch, Paul had preached the gospel, and uh, as a result of the envy of the Jews, they, they heard the message, they understood that God's, God had a love for people, but they thought it was just them. And so that love for just them, they were okay with. But to open up the gates of heaven and to offer salvation for all those who would call upon the name of Jesus, even the Gentiles, would mean that they'd have to share their reward in heaven with others. And so, for whatever reason, they didn't like this so much. They kind of liked being able to have their own little club and to look, at the, to look down on the Gentiles as if they were less than the Jews. So as a result of that, the Jews got envious, they got angry, and they sent Paul and Barnabas and the apostles that were with them out of the region of um, Antioch of Pisidia. So when they sent them out of that city, remember that you can send a messenger away, but once he shared his message, that's all he came for. The message was going to be planted there in Antioch. And we'll see later that it took root and then it caused... Uh, the Jews to still be angry about the fact that Paul had even come there in the first place. So he's going to kind of chase Paul and Barnabas down. He, they're not done uh, trying to stop the efforts of Paul and Barnabas. So then last week, as we finished up, they, they were sent out of Antioch and they went to a, a place called Iconium. It was the next city there. And so Antioch, up there on the top, is an Asia Minor and from Antioch to Iconium is where they went as a result of being sent away from the region. Imagine, if you will, somebody comes into Arcadia Valley and starts preaching this message of Jesus. And we, we're not all for it. Some of us are for it. Some of us are against it. But the ones that are against it were the more vocal ones. And they were kind of violent. And they came up with a plan to basically kill the messenger. And so as a result... Paul and Barnabas, they're not going to tempt death. They're not looking to be persecuted. They're looking to continue to share the gospel like the Lord has told them to. And so they flee. And when they flee, they end up in a place called Iconium. That's where we ended up last week. The result of them being persecuted didn't mean that they quit what God called them to do. It meant that they would move on somewhere else where someone would listen to them. And so when they got to Iconium, they shared the same message. And as they shared that message, there were some who believed and some who did not. And uh, God actually used them to do signs and wonders to confirm the message that he had used them to proclaim. But the multitude of the city, it says in verse 4, was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles, those that came to tell them about Jesus. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews, with their rulers to abuse and to stone them. This was not just to, to bruise them, but to stone someone was to put them to death. You don't just throw a rock and be like, get out of here. Kind of like you kick rocks at a, at a stray dog, you know, just, hey, get out of my yard. It's, it's the idea of we want to put you to death. We want you to be ended so what you're doing will be stopped. And so they did, they, they had made this attempt to do that and when, verse 6, they became aware of it, they fled to Lystra and to Derb, cities of Lyconia, 
to the surrounding region and they were preaching the gospel there. So again, they go through a tribulation. They're being encouraged to stop doing what they're doing. They're having their lives threatened. But what I noticed about it is that these men were not persuaded to stop what they were called to do. They were only persuaded to move on to an audience that was more likely to listen. And so when they moved on to the next audience, you would think, you know, hey, this will be much better. New territory, new place to go. Uh, When I was in high school, it seemed like uh, living in a small town. Of course, at the time, I thought a small town was like Farmington. And of course, every small town, big, small, otherwise, it doesn't matter. Kids always want to get out. When I get out of high school, I'm going to go somewhere better, somewhere new. But what you'll find is that whatever you spend your life doing, whether it's preaching the gospel or whether it's uh, going to college or going to school or finding a new job, moving on to some place, you're going to find the same things going on in every town you go to. Whether there's a million people or 1,400 people, the same things happen everywhere you go. You're going to get into the same crowds, you're going to run with the same people, And you're going to get either into the same trouble or the same good things that you would normally get into. Different places doesn't change what goes on when you go there. And so uh, when Paul goes to Lystra, it says there in verse 8, A certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking, Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Um, Let's see. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices. So in Lystra, there was a certain man. It says there, they went to Lystra and Derb. And in verse 7 it said they were preaching the gospel there. And you can imagine that everywhere they went, if they were preaching, there was a multitude, a a mixed group of people hearing the message that he was sharing. And as he was sharing this message to whoever would listen, no doubt there were people in the crowd that had heard it all before and they would move on. But there were some there sitting there just listening. Hey, you know, what's this guy talking about? They were intrigued. And so as they were intrigued, there was this one particular man that Luke zooms in on here, a man that was without strength in his feet and was sitting and he was crippled from his mother's womb. He had never walked. Now, oftentimes we see people that are crippled and we wonder what happens. At least I do. And many times we can make assumptions based on how they act and how they look. But uh, oftentimes we think of somebody crippled, we think of somebody that has gone, been in an accident or had something tragic happen, or maybe had a deformity from birth that eventually made them not able to walk. But this man, it says, from his mother's womb, he was born paralyzed. And so he's sitting there. And you can imagine, if he's been paralyzed his whole life, uh, he probably isn't uh, constrained by a whole lot of things other than he sits there. And unless somebody takes him to other places, he doesn't have much to do. So he's a captive audience. But he's Imagine if you were sitting there uh, along a street side and we see people like this that are not able to do things for themselves. Um, I was in Chicago. I saw quite a few people that were panhandling. They'd have a a foam cup or something to to make some change from. And this one guy in particular, once he had enough change, he went and got himself a coffee, you know. But they, they make their living by getting handouts. 
And so this man has gotten handouts his whole life. And imagine, even the amount of money he's gained has probably not given him much to be able to do all the things that he's ever wanted to do. So life's kind of let him down, more than likely. And you can imagine he being in this situation is wondering, why, why am I even here? What's the, the point of me even being born if I'm just going to sit here my whole life? Now, many people have the ability to walk. They have the ability to go and run free and do whatever they want to earn a living. And they spend their whole lives going, what's the point? So it doesn't matter what situation you come from. We all have a God-shaped hole in our lives. And we're all got, we all got the spiritual munchies. I robbed that from somebody else. He said, you know, I, I think I shared that last week where he, he said, you know, basically, you know, you, you ever been hungry and you didn't know what you want? You walk up to the fridge and you're standing there and you're like, you, so you just start trying stuff. And the world is full of people just trying stuff to fulfill that void. And when it leaves them high and dry, they get depressed. They, they end up bummed out and they don't know how to deal with it. Anyway, so this man is sitting there. He's not been able to walk ever. And he heard the message of Paul, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as Paul saw him listening, he saw that he had faith to be healed. What does that look like? How did Paul see that the man had faith to be healed? Was it just that he was paying attention and there was a certain look in his eye? Luke doesn't write it. Luke's a pretty detailed writer, so I don't think he could tell how Paul told. But what we know is that Paul saw something in this man, the ability to have faith faith in what Paul was preaching. And so if he believed that Jesus Christ could save him from his sins, could redeem his life and make him something other than he had been his whole life, perhaps maybe if God can deal with my spiritual issue, he can deal with my physical issue. And so Paul saw something. We don't know if the Lord just whispered to him, hey, Paul, tell that guy to stand up. We don't know. So, but what it says there is he, he looked at him And he said, stand up straight on your feet. But what I want want you to notice is that the faith that God had given him to, to do this didn't just make him stand up on his feet. It says there as a response to what Paul told him to do, he leaped up and he walked. He didn't just kind of, okay, I'll stand up. He jumped from the ground to stand. Now we could easily read over this and say, oh, okay, so he walked, great. He stood up. God can heal people. But uh, you'll notice he didn't go through uh, some sort of, what do they call that, physical training, physical therapy. He didn't, like, he was instantaneously given the ability not only to walk, but to leap. Now I think about this, and I think about my own daughter. She's been given all the faculties, the abilities, her nerve endings are all connected, her muscles are developing correctly. She's able to walk. After weeks and weeks, she's still falling, though. This man, after not walking his entire life, imagine someone that's been in a nursing home for just a couple of months, the atrophy that sets in in your bones as your body's trying to heal itself, and the amount of pain that it takes through physical therapy to start walking again. But it says that this man jumped up and he walked, he leaped. Lucy can't leap, and she's been walking for over a month. This man in a moment is able to leap and walk. That is how the work of God is wrought. That's how it takes place. It's not, if, if God's truly done a miraculous work in someone's life, it won't be a process. It'll be done. 
So we see this. And this is, you can imagine, those that had walked around the city had seen this particular man. They knew him. They saw him walking. They'd be stirred. What's going on? What's taking place here? And so in verse 11, it says, when the people saw what Paul had done, see, they saw that Paul had done it. That's all they could tell with the physical eye. Uh, Paul writes later that the, the, the mind, the natural mind that man has apart from Christ cannot discern the things of the Spirit, but he only sees things naturally. And so all they could see was this man shows up and miraculously heals someone, but we know different, that it was God that gave Paul the ability. But there in verse 11, it says, when they saw what they thought Paul had done, they raised their voices saying, in the Lyconian language, this is their local language, they say, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Jesus came in the likeness of man. Paul's, not, Paul's a man. Paul's just like you and I. There wasn't anything special about him except he had surrendered his life, given his life over to obey what Jesus had told him to do. So when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices and they said, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas, they called Zeus. We, most of us have probably heard of Zeus from mythological Greek gods. Um, and then Paul, they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Hermes is also known as the, the mythical god Jupiter. And he was apparently an orator. He spoke and, and so Paul, being the one that spoke probably more than Barnabas, they, they referred to him as, as uh, Hermes. And not only that, but Barnabas was way bigger than Paul. So, of course, the taller guy has to be Zeus, right? Because, you know, you got, it, it's like, you ever see that Arnold Schwarzenegger movie with him and Danny DeVito, I think? And they're supposed to, I forget what it's called, but they're twins. twins? Huh? Twins. Yeah. So one's tall and one's short. Obviously, they look nothing alike. But anyway, these two men, completely different, they call them gods, Hermes and Zeus. And Barnabas, they call, excuse me, verse 13, then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, he brought oxen and he brought garlands to the gates intending to make sacrifice with the multitudes. They're going to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas as if they're gods in human flesh because they've seen this miracle take place. Why is that? Why would they so quickly do that? There's got to be something more to the story. Well, there is. You see, in that culture, there was something that happened. And I've got notes here because I don't remember exactly the story. But the people in Lystra had a legend in, ingrained in their culture. We have many of these, whether it's ghost stories or whether it's you know, I heard about one time this happened and, or this house or the hospital that's behind my house. There's always these discussions about whether it's haunted. Well, there was a, a, a legend in that culture that once, at one point in time, that Zeus and Hermes had visited their land disguised as mortals. Now, they told this story and they believed it. And this was just as real to them as if we were talking about how George Washington had been the first president. It was culturally ingrained into their thinking so much that they passed it down from family to family. We have things like that too, don't we? Superstitions, ideologies, other gods. And so 
The people in Lystra, they had a legend that once, at one point, Zeus and Hermes had visited their land disguised as mortals. And at that point, no one gave them any hospitality except for one older couple. In their anger at the people, Zeus and Hermes wiped out the entire population except for the old couple that had paid them homage. This would explain the quickness to which these people at Lystra honored and tried to give homage and worship to Paul and Barnabas. They feared that it might have come on them again and they wanted to make sure that even if they were worshiping somebody they weren't supposed to, that they would err on the side of too much worship of people they shouldn't. And so that's why they respond so quickly. Now, why didn't Paul and Barnabas stop this sooner? Why didn't they, when they heard them say, these are gods, these are Hermes and Zeus, we need to go and get, this, get the priest, get, get a bull, get, you know, let's get the garland together, let's worship them. Why didn't they respond quicker? Well, it says there, plain as day, that they had said the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men, but they said it in their own language. Paul and Barnabas were world travelers. They're, they're traveling all over the place as missionaries. That doesn't mean they know their languages. And so many people surmise that, you know, they probably didn't respond really quickly because they didn't know what in the world was going on. They're just excited. Oh my gosh, did you see what just happened? You know, maybe they're making assumptions about what they're saying. So it says there that they were intending to make sacrifice to Barnabas and Saul, or Paul. Verse 14, but when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard this, when they saw the animals coming up, they tore their clothes and they ran in among the multitude. They tore their clothes, that clothes that was a sign of mourning. It was a sign of, they were overwhelmed. This was a big blasphemy. Hey, wait a minute. We came to preach that Christ is God, that he came to do the will of the Father, that there is one God, three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is no other gods. There's no other way that we must be saved. And so they respond. They're like, no, 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 don't worship us. Please, please do not worship us. And we see this by all of God's servants, including the angels. When angels, we see in the Old Testament, angels will come and give this message from God to God's people. And the people will you know, just be in fear and in awe. And they'll just throw themselves down on the ground and say, we're not worthy. And Every time it's an angel and not the angel of the Lord, which is the Lord himself in the Old Testament, every time it's an angel, a servant of God, the angel always says, don't worship me, I serve God. I'm his servant. And so in the same likeness, we have these men saying, hey, why are you doing these things? Verse 15, they're crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you, we preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good. He gave us rain from heaven, fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and with gladness, and with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them anyway. So Paul and Barnabas, what they're crying out to these guys, don't worship us. We're just men and we're, we're just like you. We're flawed. We're, we're just living beings. At any moment, we could just die. We haven't done this miracle. God is the one who's done this miracle. 
Don't worship us, worship him. They're taking the glory of God, the the worship that they're getting ready to receive, and no doubt it was a temptation. Can you imagine God using you in a mighty way like this? Or even maybe to bless someone financially? How quickly can we get to that place and we go, yeah, you're welcome, I am great. We may not say that, but we might think that inwardly. We have to take praise that God deserves that is his alone to receive. We got to take it like a hot potato. Maybe receive it and go, okay, here you go, Lord. You know, praise him for it. Always deflect that praise because if we start to take it on ourselves, we can become like Herod a couple chapters ago. They said to him, these are the words of a God and not a man. And instantly the Lord, he judged him. He gave him a sickness in his stomach. The Lord wants us to make sure that we always deflect the praise that men might give us and give it directly to him because he's the only one that's deserving. If we're used by God in any way, the only thing that we can say to people is it's because God has changed me and made me. He's he's conforming me into his image. I'm just a hose that God's pouring water through. Nobody cares about the hose unless it leaks. The hose is not the important thing. It's the water we're trying to transport it wherever we're sending it. And God desires to use us like a water hose, to be a a connection to the spout where the glory pours out, to be a spot where the glory will pour through into other people, affecting us along the way. And so that's what Paul and Barnabas are saying. Hey, you know, God has been gracious. He's not referring them to the inspired word of God, the specific revelation He's referring these guys, these Gentiles, they have no history of having the Old Testament. They don't have the word of God. But what they do have is they have the word of God, the proclamation of a creator through what they can see through creation. They've got the trees. They've got their crops that grow. They've got the rains that are provided. They've got the sun rising, giving day and night. And so he refers them to general, the general grace of God. Not the specific revelation of God, but the general revelation of God through creation. And we see this in Romans chapter 1, if you'll turn there with me. Paul explains this more specifically as he's writing to the Romans in Romans chapter 1 verse 20. It says there, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. You ever hear somebody say, well, what about the people that have never heard the gospel? How are they supposed to worship or respond or know God? Well, it says here in Romans 1 that God can be known through what he has created. And he can be seen. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man." and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. And he's referring to how they would mold images out of a, a block of wood or out of some metal, and they would begin to worship that, worshiping the creation rather than the creator. Therefore, God 
because they worshipped other things. Therefore, verse 24, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. See, we have this tendency as human beings, our hearts are inclined to worship something. And if we don't worship God, what happens is we worship something else. And we see this in this uh, place of Lystra. We, yeah, Lystra, where they, we see that they, because they don't worship God, they worship something else. They worship these mythical gods, these creatures. And, and we even see this in our culture. Um, I heard of a guy saying that he saw a bumper sticker that said, love your mother. And it had a picture of the world. We talk about Mother Earth, right? If we don't take care of our mother, then she won't take care of us. Well, that's, that's idol worship. No doubt, I, I truly believe we should take care of the world that God has given us to be stewards over, but to worship the world, to worship the, the, the ground that we walk on. We're worshiping creation rather than the creator. And we can do this in our own families. We can worship our family members. We can worship our children. It's very easy. They're cute and cuddly. They do everything we tell them to for the most part. You know, and I'm sure that'll change. I get it. I see your looks. But, you know, we can see them as, as an object of worship and not even realize it because we, whatever you put your time and your money into the most is what you worship. Just look at your checkbook. You know, that was, somebody told me that one time I started looking. I was like, wow, I've got, I've got some worship issues. And so the Lord wants to change that. He wants to conform us into his image. He wants to become and have the place of prominence in our lives. And when he does, then all those other things that he's given us to be stewards over, they'll be in the proper place. I won't be worried about denting my car because I'll go, well, God allowed it to be dented. It's okay. It's his car anyway. You know, I won't be worried about my family while I'm gone because I'll be like, well, those are people that God's given me. And if he didn't want me to be away from them, then he wouldn't have sent me. He's got a reason for it. In the meantime, he's the one that takes care of me when I'm there. And so we have the proper perspective and we worship him instead of things. Where was I? 19. So, <clears throat> after delivering this wonderful message, saying, don't worship me, worship God, you would think, hey, they did all that they were supposed to do. God's going to bless them. It's going to be easy from this point on. Uh, if you've been reading the book of Acts with us at this point, you'd know that that's uh, malarkey. So verse 19. <laughs> then the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. As a result of his preaching... We don't see a response right away out of those that he preached to in Lystra. What we see is this group from Antioch and Pisidia who had sent him out of their region. They wanted him put to death. They wanted to stone him. And then this group from Iconium that had nearly stoned him. And they are so aggravated with Paul and Barnabas and the group that was with them that they go on a, a, a mercy killing. They're mercenaries for their cause. They want to stop him from speaking. And so they travel almost a hundred miles to Lystra to make Paul 
stop talking. And so when they get there, they stir up this fickle crowd that was worshiping Zeus and Hermes, they thought, and they stir them up to stone them to death. Imagine how fickle the crowd would be. One day, they want to worship these two men. The next day, this group comes in and says, we need to stone them. And they go, okay, let's kill them. (laughs) How fickle can we be, right? We do this with baseball teams or sports teams of any kind. We love them when they're playing great, but when... Now, not everybody, Cindy. You're a diehard Cardinals fan. But, and Rebecca, you know, you guys love your team, right? And there are those that are like that. I mean, look at the Cubs fans. But <laughs> they, they don't care if they win or not. They're like, we love the Cubs. They don't like them for their record, right? But what happens is we have people that are in the entertainment industry. And we love them when they're in great movies. But when they go downhill socially, when they start making bad decisions, what do we do? We start assaulting their character. We start hating on them, murdering them in our hearts. You know, we're like that. We're fickle. That's, this is, I don't, can't think of another spot in, in, uh, in the Bible that describes our culture more. We're fickle. You know, we'll follow God as long as he makes everything great for us, makes us comfortable. But man, somebody comes along and says, hey, God's not really taking care of you. You're right. I'm done. I'm, it's over for me. Moment by moment, we just kind of were blown and driven by and tossed by the wind. Which just shows that our trust wasn't in him anyway. It was in some sort of Jesus that we construed in our own mind, conformed to what we think he should be. God is like this to me. I will worship God as long as he does these things for me. Paul and Barnabas can't have this type of faith because if they did, they would have stopped their mission already. And we see them responding. It says here that they were pers- the multitude was persuaded. They stoned Paul. They dragged him out of the city. They supposed he was dead. However, verse 20, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up, went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derb. So what does he do when he's raised up he, he was practically dead. He was so beaten up that they thought he was dead. And then he got up. Now, we don't know if they surrounded him to pray over him or if they were just standing there and he stood up. But what it says is his direct response as soon as he stood up is he went back into the city where he had just practically been put to death. He loved those people so much that he was willing to lay down his rights to protect himself He was willing to put himself in danger yet again to show him that he was willing. He loved them. He wanted them to know Jesus. He wanted them to know that I know that you hate me, but God doesn't hate you. And neither do I because he doesn't. And when he went back in there, it says that the next day he departed with Barnabas and Derb. So he stayed the night in this town. Now, was he put to death? Did he actually die? Stoning is a pretty rough thing. Basically, they're having a rock concert on your head. (laughs) Trying to make light of something that's pretty intense. But, you know, they stoned him. And many believe that Paul actually did die because when you read in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, there's a little uh, side shoot that he gives and he expresses that he got a vision of paradise. He starts off speaking as if it's in third person. But then he becomes more personal about it. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, he said, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether 
out of the body I do not know. God knows. Such a one, this man, was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Whatever he saw, he didn't think it was lawful to utter it. He was overwhelmed by it. He, he didn't really, he couldn't explain it. It was just overwhelming. Verse five, of such a one, I will boast, yet of myself, I will not boast except in my infirmities. Verse 6, for though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth, but I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. In other words, he got this vision of heaven, and many people believe that this passage is referring to when he was stoned, that he actually did die, and that he got a vision of heaven, and then for some reason God sent him back. We don't know if we got a vision or not. But you can imagine if he did in that instance, if he did get caught up to the third heaven, he was there in the presence of God and he came back, that that would instill in him even more so to continue proclaiming the truth about Jesus to those that had just stoned him. A view, a vision of God will always, the reality of God will always push you to continue and to implore people even more, be reconciled to God, he's real, and he, you will give an account to him one day. So Paul, seeing a vision of the Lord, if he did, would definitely be compelled to keep going. And so as a result, we see him do that. I don't know if that, it's just conjecture of whether or not that's what he was talking about, but I thought it was interesting. So then it says in verse 21, that when they preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra. So they went to Derb, and then it seems like they got to that spot, and they're like, you know what? We've proclaimed the gospel. There's been many people received Jesus. And so now we're going to change the focus of our trip. We're going to head back home. But if we're going to be traveling anyway, we may as well go along the same route, back to the same cities, which again, kind of a bold move considering most of the towns they'd been sent out of uh, via stoning or threatening of taking their lives. They go back through those towns because they love those people that have responded to the gospel they recognized that those people that believed were the seedbed for what would become one day churches in those areas. And so they wanted to go back and strengthen those who had already received Christ. Part of being a Christian is not just getting saved. Most churches, many churches, will spend the amount of time in church proclaiming the gospel to people that have already heard it and received it. That's why we go through chapter by chapter, verse by verse. It's not just because we want to be better than everyone, it's because we believe that the, it takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. And so we believe that God's put just the right portion of just exhortation or encouragement to keep going. He's just put just the right portion of making sure we, sure we still share the gospel because there's, in every crowd there's someone that's not a Christian. And so if God wants to reach us, we'll still share the gospel, but we'll also, the point of joining here on Sunday mornings is to kind of have a buffet, a smorgasbord of the truths of God that will meet everybody where they're at. And hopefully that God would meet each one of us where we're at. And so they go back, it says, they made this, excuse me, had preached the gospel to that city in Derb and made many disciples. And then they returned to Lystra, 
Iconium, Antioch of Pisidia, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith. And this was his main message to them. And this is the main point I want to make this morning. His main message to them was we must, talking to the believers, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. His message to them is something that he's learning personally because of what he's experiencing. He's just been stoned practically to death. And as a result of that, the Lord's showing him, keep going, keep persevering. God's gonna use this to instill in you even more so that this is what he's called you to do. Just because you're doing the will of God does not mean that your life will get easy or comfortable. Many times it means it might get harder. But your focus will remain the same because you'll, be, you'll have instilled in you even more. This must really matter because a lot of people are trying to stop me. Does that make sense? So Paul himself is learning that truth. And so as a result of that, he's proclaiming it to those that will listen because he's like, I wish someone would have told me this. If I'd have known how hard it was, perhaps I wouldn't have gone, but I needed to know, count the cost. And so as they're going through, he's proclaiming this message, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. And for that, I want to go really quickly to Romans chapter 5 in the first verse. Because in there, Paul gives a message to those Roman believers, he explains to them, he reminds them in verse one, he says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God and therefore we will have peace in the world. Not the peace that the world gives, but peace that God gives through tribulation. And so it says there in verse two, through whom, through Jesus Also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We don't hope that things will get better, hopefully. We don't hope that everything will always be perfect. We hope in the fact that we will be one day received into the glory of God. And then he gets very specific. And not only that, verse 3, but we also glory in tribulations knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Some translations say patience. And perseverance or patience produce character. And character produces hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We have a hope that doesn't disappoint. And what what happens is we are, as the song we were singing, We're earthen vessels, we're clay. We're not indestructible, we are destructible. But the cool thing is, is that when life batters us around as earthen vessels, though it seems like we're no longer useful, God continues to pour his glory into our lives. And as a result of those cracks that we think are pointless because we can't carry anything, the glory of God that we carry not only is poured out through us, but then through the cracks it shines through. And when we get shaken and battered and beaten, Paul is writing, he's saying, when I'm beaten, when I'm struck down and I'm not destroyed and I keep going, it's a witness to the world that my hope is in a place where it doesn't disappoint 
Because even when my body is failing me and my eyes are leaking, he, he wasn't known for being a good-looking guy. Many believe that because of that stoning, for the rest of his life, his eyes were messed up. He had problems seeing, which is hard when you're writing these epistles and when you're traveling and speaking to people. But what he, he was showing them is that when I'm beat down, but I'm not destroyed, I get up and I go back into the city and I don't let them deter me from proclaiming the truth of God, what they're going to see is that God won't give up on them. God's not going to stop reaching out for people that don't know Him. He won't give up. You can beat Him. You can kick Him. You can spit on Him. He's not going to stop loving you. And the Lord wants to proclaim through your, your life and mine that God doesn't give up on them. Even when they hate us, even when they try to put us to death, now, how many of you guys have been tried to put to death by someone? Probably none of us. But the reality is, is they're going to try and assassinate your character. They're going to take the things that you believe and hold true and hold dear to your life, and they're going to mock them. You have two choices. You can revile those who revile you, or you can do like Jesus did and love them anyway. That's the love of God poured out that gives hope. And so... We'll finish up. It says that they, they went strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, verse 22, saying we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. The other message is when they do that, don't give up. You cannot enter into the kingdom of God without persevering through tribulations and trials. It's just part of this walk that God's given us. He is way more interested in us being conformed into the image of Christ. He's way more interested in us learning to trust Him than He is in our comfort because He loves us. Verse 23, So when they had appointed elders in every church, this is something they did as they traveled through, they set up leadership, and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They were saying, hey, we started what was going on here, but it was only by the hand of God that you believed. We're setting up leadership in these churches, but we're not, we're, we're, you're not accountable to us. You're accountable to God. And they commended them to God because they, he was the one who they had believed in in the first place. Verse 24, and after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, which he's just tracing back his steps through which they had come in the first place. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. In other words, they sailed right back to where this whole mission started. They went back to their home church and notice what they did when they got there. Verse 27, when they had come and gathered the church together, they, took, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So not only was the mission important that they'd been sent on, not only was God teaching them along the way and using them to teach others, but even when they came back to the people that had sent them the whole way, they'd been praying for them while they were gone. They shared in basically the riches that they had received. All the stories of God's faithfulness, all the reminders of God's grace, showing them the plan of God was in fact unfolding before their very eyes. Many of them could feel slighted having to stay at home, working their daily jobs. But Paul and Barnabas as good missionaries, you know what they did? 
They came back and they said, hey, here's what God did through us. And we want you to know you were a part of that. You prayed for us. You blessed us by praying over us and sending us for supporting us to be able to go in the first place. And as a result of that, hearing the story of how God had worked mightily in the lives of those that Paul and Barnabas had preached to, they were encouraged. Perhaps there were some listening to the stories going, maybe God, that's what God wants to do with me, being called to go and be missionaries as well. So whatever God uses you to do, make sure you share that with the people that are around you, supporting you, praying for you. They'll be encouraged to keep praying. It'll be good for all of us. So, what is it that you're going through that you believe can't be the will of God? Are you trying to follow the Lord and it's hard? Be encouraged that you're not the only one. That those who enter the kingdom of God many times enter through tribulation. And those tribulations are not in vain because what they're producing in us is patience. And that patience will produce character. And that character will be godly character. And the world will see Jesus in your life. God's refining you. He's taking all the junk and taking it off the top. And in the meantime, he's building up this beautiful poema, this song through your life that people will hear. They'll witness it. And they'll want to know the God that you know because your life will be a testimony to his reality. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who takes dust and forms it into living creatures and then takes those fallen, failing, rebellious creatures and saves them even though they live in times of rejection of you, walking according to our own ways. And Father, thank you that once you save us, you don't leave us there as orphans, but you perfect our faith. You grow and mature our trust in you and that you use our very saved lives as billboards for your grace. There's nothing perfect about us. There's nothing good about us apart from you changing us from glory to glory. And I pray that if there's anybody here this morning that perhaps doesn't know if they're yours or not, Lord, that they wouldn't leave this place without praying with somebody, without receiving you as their Savior. Lord, thank you that you love us so much, even even me who for many years knowing the truth rejected you, Lord. Thank you for continuing to pursue me till finally I gave up and received the best life I've ever, uh, more than I deserve, Lord. So Father, please uh, bless these this morning. Thank you for the worship songs we get to sing. Pray that as we sing this last song that you would be uh, glorified in all that we say and do this week. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.